Well, good morning. It's an honor and privilege to be here with you. There's a first time for everything. Hey, there's a new preacher, a new pulpit, a new church, new wine and the new wineskins. <laughs> I hope you'll keep me afterwards. The title of my sermon is Do We Relate? Now, do we relate with the growing number of cross-family marriages? You never know. Puzzles me every Sunday. But today I'd like to turn your attention to 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Let's briefly pray. Father, let us submit to you this morning together as one church, one body, one fellowship of brothers and sisters. Lord, may we submit our hearts and minds to you and plead with you, would you speak the truth into our hearts? Would you transform us unto the likeness of your Son? In Jesus' name, amen. If you're already there, I will read this out to you. 1 John chapter 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Now, John is addressing believers, Christians of the Ephesian church, but the mindset that he expresses here reaches far and wide outside the church. And as we look at, this, at these first few verses the discussion of the background and the authorship is really beyond the scope of my message today. But just to say a few words that lexically, stylistically, and theologically, 1 John has been considered by the scholars as a sequel, sequel uh, writing to the Gospel of John, which in turn is a witness to God revealing himself in a personal way to men in the most natural, in the most human way. But this epistle here really serves as a discourse on the fundamental qualities of our faith, which really flow out of this natural revelation of God to men. Incidentally, here John, just as in the gospel, <clears throat> addresses the Gnostic teaching. He preaches to the to the effect of rebuttal of Gnosticism, which at its core denied even the remote possibility of God mingling with the corrupt creatures. The Gnostic proponents, in order to substantiate their hollow and erroneous position, invented a handful of deities, and the topmost of which is so far removed into the recesses of the spiritual that a human mind can cannot even conceive of what it is 
if there is at all a person out there. For all we know, it may well be a cat in a sack, for it may be anything at all, really. So naturally, so-called religion is being concealed and enshrouded in a cloud of confusion. And you know what happens when men are left with nothing but abstract concepts. As Paul puts it, their speculations turn their darkened minds to immorality and all sorts of impurity. Listen to this quote from M.T. Riley's translation of Tertullian, who's a second century theologian, who addressed this Gnostic sect early in the days led by Valentinus. He writes, Valentinians, as everyone knows, are the most commonly encountered sect of heretics. Most common because they're mostly apostates from the true religion, quite willing to invent myths, and are not deterred from their in in inventions by a strict rule of life. These individuals care about nothing more than to conceal what they teach, if indeed anyone who conceals can be said of teaching. Their duty of guardianship is a duty brought on by their guilty consciences. They preach confusion while seemingly asserting their piety. The fact that they keep silent about these mysteries make them an object of shame. Now, how can, how can anyone relate to something like that? Much less, how can anyone be spiritually transformed by something like that? Now, contrary to the Gnostics, as John emphatically states in this first chapter, there is, after all, a way to know God personally and to remain in the fellowship with him. Hence, the immediately following gospel presentation in verse 5, which we've read. Now, Christian discipleship is meant to revolve around the incarnate Son of God, his character, his person, his heart. Consequently, the true God, while being in the center of our fellowship, effectuates our changes, our personal change, unto his likeness. And the subsequent ever-increasing joy of corporate worship. Those changes can be brought forth only, only, through a personal relationship with God. Now, consider this thought. We may think of myriads of things, and, and we can do a myriads of things, just like Gnostics or any other false religion for that matter in order to become more spiritual, more holy, and so forth. But it may just be so that none of those things would make a whole lot of difference in our own lives. Why? Why also so often we fail to stimulate positive change in those whom God brings around? It may well be because we have never truly related to Christ in the first place. Or perhaps we have failed to relate Christ to others in the way he first related himself to us, in the most natural, human, and compassionate way. Beloved, I would contend that the one indicator of our spiritual growth and maturity is the desire and the joy 
of bringing people into the fellowship with God so that they too may come to know and to believe the love which God has for us. So I submit to you this morning that if we have a true relation to the incarnate Son of God, that it should, it should in turn produce fullness of joy in relating Christ to others. That is, after all, a mission for every true believer. To relate Christ is to inwardly bear his mind in ours. And as a result of the Holy Spirit's transforming work, and to genuinely to love him and his ways, and to relate Christ to others, is to pursue them in the way of Christ with grace and truth. This has to be done in, in complete accord with the incarnate nature of God, with his personhood, not only as divine, but human as well. Because would we really stand the chance of succeeding at trying to, to relate Jesus to someone in the most personal and affectionate way by communicating abstract theological concepts alone? Would it be possible for us to learn how to love apart from Christ taking on a body of a man and dying physically, naturally in the cross? And if we say that we're the people of God who have come to know and to believe in the love that he has for us. How can we ever justify our claims apart from practical testimony when we relate Christ to others? Not to mention reaching out those who are outside of the church. When we speak of Christianity, we say that it isn't, it's not a, a mere man-made religion. When we speak of Christianity, we say that it is a personal relationship with God through faith. It is a solid claim by all means. Our faith is the only one out there that carries a personal and relational quality. The only one out there. But if we fail to relate Christ to others in a likewise personal and relational manner, it won't be like offering someone a piece of bread by stretching out an empty hand. So as we observe in verses 1 and 2, Apostle John describes his own experience. And I'd like to discover what it was that caused him to desire to relate his experience to others. What influenced the motive and the attitude of John's witness of Christ? What fueled his ministry of discipleship? Of course, I have to be careful when I say experience for there's a trainload of negative connotation when it comes to certain denominational movements. What we, what we have to keep in mind that personal experience is always subjective. And I should state unequivocally that the truth of God's word remains the same, no matter what. It is the same to all and at all times. Apostle Peter, in regards to his own encounter, wrote in 2 Peter to the effect that they, Peter, John, and James, 
did not follow cleverly devised tales when they made known to us the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but they were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Yet he proceeded to write also that regardless of his personal experience, regardless of the fact that they had personally seen and experienced the Lord's, the Lord on the holy mountain, there is still a more certain prophetic word which comes directly to us from God in a spoken form. But why here? Why is it that John, here in our passage, seems to be stressing the point of the bodily revelation of God? And I would, I would argue that he's trying to establish the premise for what's to follow in the rest of the epistle. And we'll come back to that as we go along. But besides the obvious fact that the, uh, the message that he, he's communicating to, not, to us originates with God, the more important notion in this text, however, is that we have a God to have a communion with. Not a God who hides himself behind the clouds and shrouds but the God who made himself known to us in a personal way. And so John writes what was from the beginning, that which existed before the creation of our world, the word of life. May it be mentioned that in the Gnostic theology, Greek term logos, which means word, and, and zoe, which means life, are the lowest ranking deity. Now, in their chain of divine command, they're still not revealed to a lower order, such as human beings as us. But it is believed by them that the word in life had in fact brought forth the natural realm as we know it, the universe, the physical world. Yet what the Gnostics can only speculate about, John in the most assertive way proclaims that the word of life, the one and the only true God, has revealed himself so that we could hear and understand, see and observe and touch and fellowship with the true God who gives life to all things and who makes himself known through his spoken word and most naturally through his works. The originator of life, whether spiritual or physical, the embodiment of theology, in his own person has appeared to a to mere man and dwelt among them in flesh and blood and bone, like the solid theology. Now, the understanding and the knowledge that Gnostics are so proudly boasting of attaining to on their own seems absurd in the face of a real thing. You see, the proof of God rests in himself alone. There's nothing outside of him, and there's nothing that we can discover apart from him enabling us to even make sense out of it all. For no one can ever prove the existence of God apart from him testifying to himself. There's just no way to get outside of his domain and see, look, see, 
There he is. You just can't do that. Speaking from my own personal experience, one of the biggest fears in evangelism, and for the obvious reasons, is the apologetics aspect. So much so that even while being, believing that the scripture is true and trustworthy, we tend to resort, resort to the worldview of the pagan culture around us. We tend to slide into this so-called neutral mode, trying to justify the biblical grounds for the reality of life, as if the Bible could be possibly wrong or short-sighted in some way, as if the Bible didn't have all its facts in order, all of its ducks in a row, so to speak. Often we feel like we need to justify our faith by the secular weapon of choice or by reasoning which is accustomed to the world around us. No. No. The Lord provided us, us with the sword of his word. Think of David. And he chose not to take upon himself an armor of Saul, but instead used what was at his disposal. In good faith, trusting the Lord. Now, it's just a visual example. But here John points us towards such truth, which we can also stick to. In the gospel account, John writes, No one has ever seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Jesus is the proof of God. And we should settle on that. It is a historical fact. Case closed. So really, what John is doing here is synchronizing special revelation with natural in the second person of the Trinity. But I don't wish to drive a strictly apologetic point here because I don't believe that this is what John is really after in this text. Which brings us back to our initial question of what exactly did John see and observe in Christ that motivated him to relate Jesus to others? In verse 2, if you read with me, he says, and we have seen, we have seen, dealing with the real observable evidence. We have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Eternal life, as our Lord puts it, is the true knowledge of God. True knowledge of God. But how exactly did Jesus manifest the true personal knowledge of God the Father in his human person? Indeed, Christ preached and taught during his earthly ministry, but it is his actions that brought substance to his claims of love of God and love of your neighbor. And here John is referring to the factual evidence of Jesus' life in the flesh. And his day-to-day -day interactions with the people and of his personal modeling of mercy and loving kindness toward others. Teaching is one thing, and we believe his teaching. Getting to know him intimately on the stage of everyday life among those to whom he came to die for reveals heart and mind of our Savior to us.
and the rubbing of shoulders with God, man, Jesus, it appears, transformed the heart and mind of John as well. Once and for all, so much so that his one and only occupation became relating Christ to others. Namely, by the proclamation of the righteous love of God as observed in action. And when I say righteous, I mean without selfishness or hypocrisy. The love of God which is, in full, which is full of truth and grace. The love of God which brings about hope of our redemption. That kind of love. And not of our, our only redemption. But as John puts it, even for those of the whole world. So the apostle proclaims that he had seen the eternal life. He is Jesus, the Christ, the creator, the redeemer, the shepherd, the brother, the friend. So John stresses the point of being an eyewitness of who Christ really is. So I too would like for us to take a careful look at how exactly did this testimony of eternal life manifest itself through Jesus' modeling of genuine godliness. Well, for starters, Jesus was not at all about crowd mentality. There's an account in Luke 14 where it's written that when the large crowds followed him, he turned around and said, unless you're willing to lay down your life for me, you're not worthy to be my disciples. He challenged even his own disciples, asking them, do you wish to leave yourselves? He didn't care for the crowds to follow him. If you would turn with me to John 17, Verse 22, I want us to consider the mind and the heart of Christ. John 17, verse 22, reads, The glory which you have given me, and that is Jesus praying to his Father. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, Although the world has not known you, yet I have known you. And these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them, and you will make it known. And will make it known. So that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. It was always about growing and being perfected in the love of God. That is the purpose of discipleship and fellowship in the mind of Christ. To this 
point, Paul wrote that the love of Christ controls us and causes us to live for him. And this very love is what, what should fuel our evangelism, our discipleship, and our shepherding. Secondly, Jesus was not at all concerned with the nominal, superficial piety. For him, affiliation with the rejects and deplorables was the ground zero of outreach. Matthew tells us in chapter 9, and I will read it to you, that Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, and behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. I mean to say he fellowshiped with the unbelievers. But this was the venue to bring about the knowledge of God, God's mercy upon those who'd been long deemed to be contemptible, even by their own fellow men. And yes, those people might just well be worthy to view in such a way. But as it appears, in the eyes of God, they were worthy of his grace. For Jesus desired compassion, compassion, and not a heart of self-absorbed kind of holiness, which exhibits no sympathy, but it's only concerned with its personal levels of comfort. Jesus, as some may be familiar with the account of Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, while, while in Jericho passing by a tax collector, he said, Zacchaeus, hurry up and come down, man, for I'm dining at your house today. For the Lord considered him too as the child of Abraham. Thirdly, Jesus did not see it as a hindrance to relate to those of an inferior social or sexual rank. He did not roll his eyes when it came about time to relate the love of God to women. And if that wasn't enough back then, he went as far as reaching out and pursuing those women who suffered public shame. Think about Jesus building a bridge to witness the grace of God even at the risk of personal disrepute. John, describing the scene at the Jacob's well, wrote about Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan adulterous woman, who was not only culturally but also socially at odds. Jesus reached over to the other side, asking for help, humbling himself, so that he could reach her down wherever in life she was. Portraying himself as vulnerable. Or think of the woman who suffered from hemorrhage for so many years. And by all religious and cultural norms, was considered unclean, defiled. What did it cause Jesus to publicly acknowledge that she touched him? Not only did he make it known to everyone around, he gave hope to her, called her daughter, called her daughter, the one who was despised in the eyes of many. Fourth, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8, we find an account of, of the leper kneeling before the Lord and asking, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. 
And consider the following again in the religious and cultural context. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I'm willing, I'm willing, be cleansed. If you're familiar with the text, you should note that this was done in the presence of a large crowd as well. Perhaps in our day and age, you could benefit by a few million followers on your social channel. Talking about Pope Francis kissing prisoners' feet in front of hundreds of newspaper cameras. But there and then, it was beyond unthinkable. When such men were doomed to spend their days in seclusion, wandering as lost dogs on the outskirts of the cities and along desolate roads, without any kind of hope for medical care or even basic, basic care. Lord, if you're willing, Yes, he was willing. He was willing. And fifth, as far as we can tell by the witness of John, he was willing not because of peer pressure or some kind of need to back up his public image. He had his mind set on bringing about hope to men. When at the pool of Bethesda, he took initiative and reached out and sought out the lame man who had nothing but a mere superstition to hinge the hope of his life onto. But Jesus, as Barclay refers to him, the friend of friendless. The friend of friendless. I can say it again, it breaks my heart. The friend of the friendless. He did not see it as a necessity to lecture the man on uselessness of his hopes. No. He gave him what he had. Faith unto God. Faith to believe. Yes, he was willing. And he went out of his way to do what it takes. And note that I'm not talking about merely supernatural abilities of Christ. Well, it was Jesus who had done many miracles. But these are qualities of his human character. Abilities that pertain to each one of us. And these are just a few observations out of many. But this should be enough for us to learn of the mind of Christ as he dealt with others. So as we go back to our passage here in verse 3, we read, What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. Not as John does not say what we have seen and heard, we recorded and stashed deep in the basement. The effect of John's personal relationship with the incarnate Lord is the resounding proclamation of the gospel, which brings hope to the sinner. But why? What is the undergirding motive? Read further, verse 3, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And this proclamation, as you can see, not at all about feeling good about his ministry accomplishments, 
or his spiritual growth. It's not about performance. It's not a publicity stunt. The aim, as we can see, is connected directly to the heart of our Savior. What he spoke, what he did. Just as he himself pleaded with the Father for others to come to know God. The aim thereby and the motive is to establish others in the fellowship of the disciples of Christ. To establish them in our fellowship. The begging question is, of course, why would anyone want to do anything with them? But is it really about them? And is it really about us? The end of verse 3 we read, And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So no, not, the point is not simply of having the pews filled up for no better reason than a company of good people or some sort of social extravaganza. The point is to bring others into the fellowship with God Himself by the ministry of the Word and of the brotherly love. By relating Christ to one another and together relating to Him. As John Piper once said, quote, Fellowship is a mutual bond that Christians have with Christ that puts us in a deep eternal relationship with one another. And so the resultant outcome, as is indicated in verse 4, is the fullness of joy. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Now wait a minute. Does John mean to say that there's something lacking in his personal communion with Christ? There is something else that needs to be on the side of Jesus? Do we require other believers to be completely satisfied in Jesus? Well, apparently so. As my seminary prof says, is this in the Bible? Do you believe it? Then deal with it. Deal with it. I would argue that there is no biblical reason to bifurcate these two relational categories. On one side, we have Jesus in the flesh, whom the disciples have come to know. And on the other, there are people who make up the body of this very Jesus. Those, were, those two were never meant to be separated or set in preference to one another. You can't just say, I love Jesus, but I don't care about you. Or I care about you, but not about Jesus. There's just no such thing. If you look in our epistle, 1 John uh, chapter 3, verse 23. It says, this is, the, this is His commandment. That we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. And love one another just as he commanded. So both of those things are sandwiched in the commandment of God. 1 John 4.21 And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. 1 John 5.2 By this we know that we love the children of God. 
I'd say a better translation. By this we come to know that we should love the children of God when we love God and do His commandments. This is how we realize that we are to love each other when we love God. This is the heart of the disciple of Christ. To impart the love of God unto others. Love of Christ which brings joy as we love and are being loved by one another. Now, but what about us? How do we follow the example of Christ? None of us has ever experienced Christ in the flesh, has he? Why should we even bother considering any of this? Well, let me explain how this applies to us. True, our faith is not based on the personal witness of incarnate Son of God. But rather it's a supernatural faith. We as believers experience God's mercy and grace. And the way the gospel reaches each one of us individually. And the spirit bears personal witness within by the convictions of faith. We have in fact become partakers of the divine nature of God by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Who now relates Jesus to us in his fullness through the scriptures and the fellowship of the body of Christ. And here in this epistle, there is a passage which communicates to us a more relevant implication. 1 John 4.12 says, No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. This is the testimony of Christ-like love among believers. It is the manifestation of God's existence and of his presence in our midst. This kind of proof transcends times and cultures. This kind of proof is what makes us holy, sanctified. The love of Christ among the disciples is what sets us apart from the rest of the world. And why, we should ask, how does this assurance then? work itself out in our own relationship to Christ and to others? How is this supposed to influence our heart's attitude and our character qualities? Now, there is plenty of teaching on one another aspect of church's fellowship throughout the Bible, but what I'm really after today is not mere display of honesty or polite language. Even though those are all good and godly things, and unbelievers do all those things. But the more fundamental qualities are the one that we, uh, we, we tend to dismiss. We tend to unaccount for under the pretense of superficial piety. I really would like for us to thoughtfully consider the heart and the attitude of a believer as a result of personal spiritual transformation. And as a, as a result of experiential, not merely conceptual, ongoing relationship with Christ. Let us examine whether we bear the mind of Christ. 1 John 2, 5, if you turn there, says, but whoever keeps his word, I'm sorry, <clears throat> I think I got the wrong passage here.
In 1 John 2, it says, by this, we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Now, do we follow the walk of Christ or only the talk? Consider Jesus' fervent prayer on behalf of his disciples in order to impart the knowledge of God's love to them. How he desired to passionately, so passionately, for them to come into communion with God, the Father. Someone who claims to know God's love cannot and should not be apathetic about drawing others into the same fellowship. It would be unnatural. It would be contradictory. 1 John 2, 9 says, The one who says he's in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. 1 John 3, 10 says, By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. Neither is the one who does not love his brother. Beloved, let there be no confusion in this regard. The love of God is unhypocritical. As Paul wrote in Romans 12, it considers one another above self. It is devoted and does not lag in diligence. Not merely stagnant, but rather fervent in spirit. It contributes to the need of the saints. It practices hospitality. Now what really attests to our own conversion and sanctification is the Christ-like love. Love which drives the gospel. Love which brings hope. Love which in a real, personal, tangible way relates Jesus to others. And I'm running out of time here a little bit, but we ought to bear the mind and the attitude of Christ in practice. How do we do that? How do we do that? As believers, we should be governed by the Holy Scriptures and guided by the Spirit in the way of our personal communion with Jesus. For this is the way we bear witness of Him to each other. Yet not by word only, but also in deed and truth. There is, after all, a way to know God as we relate His truth, His compassion, His affection to one another. And there is a way for those outside the church to know that there is God of truth and righteousness. And he is also the God of hope, mercy, and grace. Now some believers strap on the armor of God and they don't let their guard down. And that's good and biblical. Beloved, we just have to be considerate. Considerate. As we strap on the armor of God, we tend to be so clumsy at times, knocking people over, scrapping them with sharp edges. But some do it with such a zeal as if they were on the mission to slay and to destroy, picking a fight on every single issue, ready to die on every hill out there. And you know how it is in in the heat of the moment, it gets sweaty and smelly and it starts to show what's really underneath all of that armor 
as Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, to some we are a fragrant aroma, but to others we are a stench of death. It seems like sometimes you just can't get rid of this embarrassing smell, no matter who you talk to. Perhaps it's not the smell of the gospel anymore. You know what they say about pride. It's like bad smell in the mouth. Everyone knows about it except you. But is this the way to bring about hope for the lost, for the weak, for the oppressed? Is this the way to build bridges? Friends, we got to keep in mind that the word of God is not only a sword. It is also light, food to nourish, power to create faith and eternal life, gold to enrich, seed to multiply, mirror to reflect, and the fire to refine. So how do we build a bridge? Is it the lack of understanding that the church is called to bear witness of Christ in the world, of his glory, to take on the ministry of evangelism and of good works? Is it really? I would argue otherwise. Friends, I would urge you to consider the joy of the angels when God brings in the lost. I would urge you to consider this joy of knowing what a, what a lost person feels when he experiences the grace of God. Rejoice by the thought of God, what he feels when he pours out his grace upon the lost, upon the sinners such as us. Rejoice by the fact that we are privileged and we are given an opportunity to participate in the redemptive work of Christ. Rejoice always, I say rejoice together with Paul. How can I explain my joy when whenever I relate Christ, people come to the knowledge of God, to saving faith. Perhaps some of us, those who have children, get saved, know what it means. But if we truly relate to Christ, we, take, we, should, we should really consider the great deal of joy in pursuing not only our own, but just as he did. Consider the opportunity that God provided us even in this school, even in this school. As we reside here, let us not simply be Tenants, simply customers, mere users. But let us seek the opportunity to reach out and to relate Jesus in a variety of ways. Variety of ways. I spoke to Ben Ito, uh, the pastor at the City Bible Church recently. They're also renting from a high school, as some of you know. And he really encouraged and urged us to, to go beyond the call of duty here while we're here. To consider people who serve us here. 
right? Some of the things that he mentioned were encouraging the teachers to leave gifts in the classrooms, to offer substitute teaching support. They do substitute teaching at their school. To help clean up, even to store money for some of those children who, who are grown in, the, in impoverished families, impoverished homes, for mattresses, sleeping bags, and so forth. Just consider how much we really have in terms of opportunity to reach out and relate Jesus to others. Consider the same in the co-op ministry. And sisters, I want to encourage you to once again consider the ministry of outreach. Since the Iron Curtain have been lifted up, you know what I mean. Let's become excited by where the Lord brings us at this point in time. Let us just as our Lord reach across the aisle and invite those who, are, who may not be a part of us yet. Reach across dinner table and be hospitable and serve the grace to those who are miserable and lonely. Reach into the dirty sinks and the trash cans, just like you reach for that precious silverware. There are people who are precious in God's sight. Those whom we so often don't notice or turn our eyes away from. So, finally, allow me to reiterate my earlier proposition that if we have a true relationship with the incarnate Son of God, then it should, in turn, produce fullness of joy in relating Christ to others. That, after all, is the sign of every true believer. Friends, let us open our hearts so that our fellowship and the doors of our homes may be open as well. Let's pray. Father, it is truly unnatural for us to rejoice in salvation of man. But since we have imparted, you have imparted to us your own heart and your own mind in your own person, may we follow your example. May we relate Christ to one another. May, we be, may our minds be set on reaching out and bringing others into this same sweet fellowship around our Lord. May our love be unhypocritical. Lord, we pray for your glory. We pray so that your will may be done. Bless us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.